Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. Studio 19 is once again back at IPA ACT's headquarters in Canberra to talk Indigenous Affairs. Now, the program was scheduled to coincide with NAIDOC week, but that, like so many other things, has been deferred. NAIDOC week will now be later in the year in November. But this episode is really to celebrate NAIDOC week, and we look forward to NAIDOC week coming back online in November. But today we will talk Indigenous affairs and how the agency with responsibility for Australia's first peoples have been managing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Ray Griggs was appointed as the inaugural Chief Executive Officer of the National Indigenous Australians Agency, the NIAA, when it was stood up as an executive agency on the 1st of July last year, having earlier served as the Associate Secretary in the Indigenous Affairs Group in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. But Ray is perhaps best known for his distinguished 40-year career in the Australian Navy. Ray trained as a navigator, served as a principal warfare officer and was commander of the frigate HMAS Arunta on numerous operational assignments, including the protection of our borders and contributing to the multinational forces in the Middle East. His military career culminated in two of the highest postings in the Australian Defence Force, serving as the Chief of Navy from 2011 to 2014 and the Vice Chief of the Defence Force from 2014 until 2018. Ray's interest in Indigenous affairs is long-standing. In the Navy, Ray was a supporter of Indigenous officers and sailors and recognised the power and the importance of diversity in recruitment. While Chief of Navy, he appointed the first full-time strategic Indigenous advisor to ensure that the Navy was doing all it could to support Indigenous Australians. Ray was awarded a conspicuous service cross in 1997, a commendation for distinguished service in 2003. He was appointed a member of the Order of Australia in 2009 and elevated to an officer of the Order of Australia in 2012. His entire working career has been dedicated to the best interests of the Australian people, a commitment that continues to this day. Ray Griggs, welcome to Work With Purpose. Thanks, David. And I believe you've, you've got a welcome that you'd uh, like to share with us. Indeed. In fact, I would, would like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of all the lands upon uh, that people are listening to this podcast on. Uh, and in, uh, in Ngunnawal, I would uh, say Daura Nuna, Daura Nunawal, Yangu Nalamanyan Dunimanyan, Nunawal Wari. Daura Wari, Dindi, Langira, Wijinlin. 
This is Ngunnawal Country, and today we're all meeting together on Ngunnawal Country. We acknowledge and pay our respects to the elders. Great, thank you. Uh, Letitia Hope is the Deputy Chief Executive Officer at the NIAA and a proud Bunjalung, Torres Strait Islander and South Pacific Islander woman. The Bunjalung people are from the Northern Rivers of New South Wales. As Deputy CEO, Letitia is responsible for making stuff happen and ensuring that the NIAA is a trusted and reliable partner contributing positively to the lives of all Indigenous Australians. Letitia is the daughter of Colin Watergo, who was an army officer, which meant she, like many children of Australia's service men and women, grew up in lots of towns and cities along the east coast of Australia. For the past 26 years, Letitia has served in a range of positions across both Commonwealth and state governments in both mainstream and specialised social policy development, service delivery, and more recently in health. Letitia started her public service career as an APS1 trainee at the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, where 21 years later, she returned as the Deputy Chief Executive Officer and Chief Operating Officer before working alongside Ray at the Indigenous Affairs Group in PMNC as a First Assistant Secretary. Throughout her career, Letitia has provided mentorship and leadership to both Indigenous and non-Indigenous staff across all levels of the APS and is passionate about developing skills and capability across the APS. Letitia and her husband, Matt, not only have three beautiful daughters, but four granddaughters with a fifth granddaughter due in August this year. Letitia, welcome to Work With Purpose. Thanks so much. Letitia, let's start with this great news about your family. And I always get super excited for people in these moments because while it seems sometimes a bit routine, the birth of a child is is such a time of great celebration and joy. Um, Now, for mine, one of the great positives of the COVID lockdown is that people have slowed down a bit and they've been a bit more reflective and indeed, dare I say, probably a bit more appreciative of the simple things in life, such as the the love and care and attention of, of family. With that exciting news ahead, how has your experience been of the COVID lockdown with your family? Uh, thanks. Firstly, I'd like to also acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands that we meet on today, the Ngunnawal people, um, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, Look, it's been a really interesting and I think probably historically significant period for most people. A couple of things on the personal front, I would say, is um, the, the, the time that we've had over the last two, you know, three, four months has actually given me real um, opportunity to pause and think about what's really important and how to move out from being perpetually busy to actually focusing on things that are actually really critical and whether that be... Um, managing your family environment or managing the really important things you need to do in work. I don't believe in work-life balance. I think it's more like spinning plates in a circus. And what you do hope is that you keep them all spinning enough so that the fine china doesn't hit the floor. Um, I really do think that's part of the role, particularly in the APS, given the diversity of things that we have to look at. But um, I do think that there are some things that um, have caused me to pause to say, okay, what have I learned about my working and operating style 
that I will change or challenge? What have I learnt about my working and operating style that I will continue? So there were some things that came out of, you know, the working from home environment where I've gone, actually, that's a really good practice and I think I might take that forward. Mm. And um, what have I learnt about managing that work and family dimension that I will take forward as well? But um, uh, I think one of the most challenging things is is managing your family commitments and your professional career and your professional life. But, um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been, I think, an interesting experience for most of us. The only tip I would give, uh, it's a bit of a personal tidbit, but um, what my husband and I and my family found is that we had to divide our house up into working areas to create some margins because margins save marriages. So <laughs> we did have to make sure we allowed ourselves the space to actually really get into the work um, and the space to flip between what is working time and what is home time. Yeah, right. And, Ray, what about you? What, what sort of changes have come about in, in your life as a, as a result of, of the COVID period? Well, to be honest, not much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like Letitia, I've, I've never been a... Uh, I've never <laughs> subscribed to work-life balance. Uh, I'm much more a work-life imbalance person. Um, for me, it's about carving out time for yourself and making sure you do carve out time. Um, I've spent, I spent most of the time in the office. I, I, I worked from home only, you know, a couple of days a fortnight. Um, so I, I didn't really ha- haven't really had the same experience mm. that, the, that the rest of the team has because we've had about 90... About 90% of the team have been working from home right. for the last few months. And, and, and I, it's been interesting looking, you know, from that sort of top-down view of the organisation around productivity and innovation and all those all those things. And, I, you know, I, I really haven't noticed uh, any any dip in productivity from an organisational perspective. I know we have um, we have different camps in the organisation of people who really enjoy working from home yep. and the flexibility that brings, you know, even, even the lack of a commute um, yep. in some ways is a productivity boost. Um, but there are also people who don't like it and they want to come back for that more social part of the work experience that uh, so it, it, look it's been it's been fascinating um, looking at at how people view um, their work experience now in in your position you've now been working in indigenous affairs for a couple of years now following your you know distinguished career in the navy and in in the ADF how have you found that transition from your sort of long-term military career into working in the Indigenous space? Um, I, I haven't found it that difficult. I, I think, you know, often people um, will ascribe a particular stereotype to military people, that, that you act in a particular way, that you have a particular style. And, and I have no doubt that my style was probably, uh, you know, a little less fluffy... Um, than some people were used to when I came into the organisation. But from my perspective, uh, what I brought, I think, was a, a range of organisational skills and leadership management, governance and all those sorts of things that, that I'd picked up at, you know, uh, certainly uh, seven years at, at sort of Band 3 equivalent level in defence and, and longer as an SCS equivalent. So I, I think, you know, I was quite comfortable with that skill set that I was going to bring uh, and I didn't didn't foresee that, that the transition in that area, that perspective would be difficult, and and it hasn't been. Uh, where where it's been challenging is where I th- thought it would be challenging, and that's going from uh, a career where after forty years you're 
there was an intuitive and inherent content knowledge of just about everything across the organisation into yeah. uh, almost not all, not almost zero, but not far off zero um, intuitive content knowledge of, of what you're dealing with. And uh, in, in some ways that was good because it, it meant that I struck a completely clean sheet approach from my perspective and um, and listened hard, uh, learnt as I went. I'm still learning every day. It's, it's, it's a very complex, challenging and rewarding space. Um, but the other thing, of course, you miss is your... the those networks that you've come to rely on in your professional career. Yep. Now, you know, again, in the organisational and the APS side, I had, had good networks, but from an, from an Indigenous network of stakeholders and people that I, I could sort of draw on and lean on, uh, I didn't have that. And, I, you know, I was lucky enough to have some, some great uh, Indigenous leaders inside the agency, uh, Ian Anderson, Letitia... Uh, Anne-Marie Roberts, Kevin Brahm, a, a range of people who could actually uh, pull me up, point me in a different direction mm. and explain um, really some of, the, some of the nuances and the intricacies. Mm. Because, you know, I know that um, non-Indigenous people come and go from this area um, and I know that my time there will be whatever it is. Uh, I just want to make a contribution. Uh, I want to continue to serve. I've spent my life serving yeah. and um, my, my one of my other aims was to not be bored when I when I left the ADF I, I may have overcorrected <laughs> but um, uh, but it, 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 it I, I love I love the it's work I love the work I love the challenge and and we're you know we're doing some really really important things not just for indigenous Australians but for all Australians. Now, we'll come to that in a moment, but Letitia, I notice you're nodding your head there. You know, someone like Ray, with, with that background, but also with that curiosity that he's, that he's just described and with that willingness to say, look, you know, there's a lot of here that I, that I don't know. What role were you able to play into sort of assisting Ray and how else can you help others who may be in similar positions in the future make a contribution in this important area of public policy? Um, so that, that's a great question. A couple of things, I, a couple of analogies I would kind of draw on is that um, the military, because I'm also a military yeah. kid, so I have yeah. a long, lot of experience in terms of military um, life, not necessarily professional military operations. Um, well, a couple of analogies I've always thought that's really interesting is that, you know, the APS in and of itself is made up a set of tribes and clans, with totems, with language, with norms, with chiefs. It is. It is really like that. So when you think about it kind of anthropologically or systemically, Ray's grown up in a world that's had, uh, in his professional career, which is tribes, chiefs, clans, totems, language, the way that interacts together. So I think the skill sets that Ray brings in terms of understanding that um, are of immense value to the Indigenous Affairs portfolio. But actually, I think that's where the contribution of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, citizens also make in terms of understanding how to operate within the APS and a unique value proposition that they bring to that. I mean, mm. you know, central agencies have their own way of doing business. Line agencies have their own way of doing business. Within those, you also have... Um, 
elements of, you know, the IT people have a particular language, the policy people have a particular language, the delivery people have a particular language. And I think the real skill of being a public servant and making a contribution is actually understanding how that system sits together mm -hmm. and how you can make a contribution to that system. So, um, and, and I think one of the things that I am really pleased about that, that, that Ray and the executive team have put in place is actually creating the space to have that conversation. I don't quite understand where you're coming from. Can we talk about that? Yeah. You know, and the work that we've put in the agency around values and behaviours is really the epicentre of that. Mm. It's not about understanding everything. It's about having the, a conversation to understand and accept that you don't understand everything. Mm. And that's true in any, in any work environment in the public sector. It's probably true in any part of societal life anywhere. Mm. So I, I think there's been a really strong set, that curiosity to ask the question and actually be brave enough to ask the question and then the respect to hear an answer and adjust. I think that's, that's a really um, important cultural norm that we're trying to build into the fabric of the agency. Mm, fantastic. So now, um, COVID-19 and the APS response is the foundation of this podcast. And I imagine that things at the NIAA got very real very quickly when you consider that Australia's first peoples are amongst our most vulnerable. Ray, what were some of the steps taken um, to protect people in those communities in those very early days? Because it does seem to have been quite a, a, a good success. Uh so far, I, so I far, yeah, I, okay. I think yep. I think we've got to be we've got to be uh, really alive to the fact that the threat to our remote Indigenous communities has not changed. Yep. Uh, it's just that the measures that were taken early on were effective in in uh, well, in fact, we've not had uh, any um, any of our um, community members uh, in in remote communities. Have no, no one has contracted COVID nineteen to date, so. That, that, is, that is a very good thing, um, but I'm not complacent about it at all. Um, we realised very early on, very early on, that the, um, that the metropolitan uh, response of self-isolation, which, is, which was really the, the mantra at the start, yep. uh, was not going to work in, uh, in remote communities for, uh, for a range of... Of reasons. Now we weren't the only ones to realise that. Now, our health colleagues and ourselves were talking about that all the time. The Aboriginal health sector uh, was was quite prominent, and a number of communities realised uh, very early on that an isolation approach was probably the only viable way of keeping COVID nineteen out of their communities. The APY lands in South Australia, for example, were the first, I think, to go and implement. Um, some sort of lockdown with, on the APY lands. Now, they have a, a permit system all the time yeah. anyway, so, so it was quite easy for them to do that. But So uh, I think um, coming to the realisation that what was working in the cities and in regional centres was not going to work in remote communities was a very important first step. And that was a team effort um, uh, with health, with the, the uh, Aboriginal... Uh, health sector and with local leaders and local communities. So it very much was a was a team effort. The the big thing for us around the remote travel restrictions, as they as they were then called when they, when we applied the the Biosecurity Act to that to to, you know, to affect that, was that um, people needed to have confidence. People in communities needed to have confidence that. 
those who were accessing the community, uh, that needed to access the community, only did so because they needed to and that was going to be of benefit to the community and that there were controls in place uh, to ensure that people just didn't come in and bring the virus with them. So that was really important uh, confidence issue for those in communities. The second important confidence issue was around um, the provision of medical services and, and, and medical supplies. And the third one, and this is where we, we played a, a very active role, was in food security. Because if, um, if food security couldn't be maintained, then people were going to up sticks, leave their communities, go into regional centres, potentially be exposed to the virus and then come back. Yep. Just just to get the basics that they needed. So food security was a challenge and, of course, it was compounded by the panic buying in the cities, which then had a direct ripple effect right through to, uh, to remote stores and, and, and the, the grocery supply system into, into remote communities, which is only about 2% of the national grocery market. But from our perspective, it was the epicentre yeah. because it, it meant that the... That the um, uh, Without it, that confidence issue couldn't be maintained. So they were the sort of main things to so, start with. But in terms of that, how did you secure that supply chain? How did you make sure that the food was available and was delivered? So one of the one of the big things was for people uh, up what I call upstream in the food supply chain at the sort of at the at the at the manuf- food manufacturers, at the wholesalers, at the big supermarket chains, was simply awareness right. of the issue. Yeah, because it's not a, it's not a sector that they think about on a day to day basis, and and clearly as 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 the panic buying and, and and the like was happening in the city, there was a lot of focus on that quite quite rightly. Yeah. Um. So first of all, was us getting that on on the table, and we used the national coordination mechanism okay. of the national cabinet to do that, uh, and then we established a food security working group uh, for the downstream in the distribution end, the 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 food, um, the the you know, the, the wholesalers and distribution agents, um, the store management companies that managed most of the stores remotely. Um, we, we brought them together in, in conjunction with the uh, uh, Queensland, WA and Northern Territory and South Australian governments to make sure that we were focused on um, removing roadblocks to getting food through. Mm. Um, Letitia Ray... Um alludes there to that relationship between the states and and the Commonwealth. How has this changed that relationship and has it changed it for the positive? So one of the things that um, I'm most proud of is the, the presence that NIAA has nationally. So we have, I think it's about nearly 70, it might be somewhere around that, 70 sites nationally and we have... Um, over the course of, of many years, actually built really strong relationships both at the local jurisdictional and the state jurisdictional level and also with the Indigenous community sector themselves. So being able to draw on those relationship investments in a time like this where it is fundamental to get really good quality intel and information from the ground up but also work cross-jurisdictionally around approaches um, was really fundamental and I'm really proud of the agency in the way that, you know, you you draw on those investments 
because you have invested in those relationships. And so that's really some of the excellent work that um, the NIAA so Regional Presence very does. Well, that, did, that it really did. That... And, and you can't draw on that kind of at the pace yeah. and at the scale and at the, the multifaceted issues that we were dealing with nationally and locally. If you don't have the investment there, you can't actually draw on it. So I think that, you know, it's that kind of work that um, the teams have done over many years to build those relationships. They have, they, and it has really shown benefit in terms of the Biosecurity Act, the work that Ray's talking about in terms of food security, in terms of how we deal with local issues and how they're escalated at the national level. Um, so really, really impressive and really, really um, important underpinning. Hmm. Um, we move through this pandemic into the next phase, and, and I take Ray's point that, you know, it, it's a long way from being over. There's a, there's a lot to deal with. So, Ray, but there are, I imagine, a lot of things that you have learnt um, in this early stage. So, as we transition, um, where do you see the changes being made? Where, can, where, where What are some of the things that you've learnt that, that you will seek to embed and improve the way the NIAA um, works in service of Indigenous Australians into the future? So I think um, Letitia's covered a fair bit of this already, but the, the we, we reorganised our regional teams uh, in December of last year and um, that reorganisation really really paid dividends um, in... in the, in the sense that we had more senior people on the ground in different jurisdictions to uh, to cement ourselves into those the state and territory processes, particularly the crisis management processes, we were deeply embedded uh, across. I, I think it was about forty or fifty different um, working groups and structures across the, the wow. four states. Uh, we had a, we, and it wasn't just as an observer. We were active participants, and mm. and uh, and again, I think it really it built on the on the depth of those relationships that that we had built over time. Uh, we, I, I would really like to see that that level uh, of, of collaboration continue, and we, and we will continue to to work on that. Um, and I, I think the thing that we're happiest about is that I, I think. What COVID's done for us is is really it's made our regional teams understand just how important their role is from the centre. Yeah. Because we what we needed, uh, particularly early on, there there was a lot of there was a lot of anxiety in remote communities. There was a lot of stories flying around. Um, dare I say it? There was a lot of fake news, and uh, our regional presence was able to get to the get to the nub of a story and of course particularly uh, having uh, an indigenous cabinet minister um, he was also getting fed a lot of a lot of information and we were able to to say to him we believe that's true or not true and that that of course helped him triage yep. w- what he had to do so um, I, I think you know the reinforcing the value of our regional teams uh, and the ability to, to gather the on-ground intelligence and bring it back, synthesise it and, and um, work with it in those circumstances. I, I really want to see that stick uh, on the other side of this from, from an organisational perspective. Yeah. Excellent. 
So, listen, a feature of this podcast are the questions from IPA's future leaders, uh, where the young and impressive future leaders ask questions of you, the current leadership. And, uh, Letitia, I will direct the first question to you, which is from Megan Aponte-Payne from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. And Megan asks, Indigenous communities such as the APY lands in Central Australia do not always fit into clean state and territory borders. How have they been affected by the differing state COVID restrictions? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and that is an, an absolute accurate description. They don't always neatly fit into jurisdictional borders. Um, but I, I guess I'll draw back on the, the conversation we were just having around making sure that we've got that regional presence that can to, to manage those cross-jurisdictional conversations because this isn't a new COVID thing. The, the, that kind of interplay has been in place for many years. Um, and so being able to have that kind of interplay at that local level and having that regional interplay at that local level to ensure that people can ground truth, and I think that's where Ray was coming, what's coming out of the centre and what does that actually look like locally and also ground truth, what's happening locally and how does that feed up cross-jurisdictionally is where some of the strength is. Um, I, that's probably where I'd, I'd okay. land that question. Just keep working hard at, at, at the communication on the ground well, with those relationships to ensure that um, you know, the lines of communication are open. So the only other thing I'd say to that, building on the conversation we're having earlier, is that those relationships on the ground are important, absolutely. But actually the relationships around portfolio bodies in Canberra are yep. equally as important. So it's important to, um, and I am a little biased because I am operations and delivery, so that's kind of my <laughs> focus. But in, you know, in fairness to the breadth of the agency and what it does, actually having those conversations and the work that, that Ray and, and um, Blair Excel and his team do in that policy setting conversation around town is equally as important in terms of how that flows. So... Okay. Um, okay. And the second question is to you, Ray, and it's from Holly Noble from the Department of Finance. And Holly asks, every year, many public servants from a variety of agencies take part in the Jarwin program with Indigenous communities and small businesses. This program consistently receives fantastic feedback and is a great opportunity for APS staff to share expertise while also learning a lot about Indigenous communities to help shape our programs and service delivery offering going forward. How do you anticipate this program and our ongoing collaboration efforts will be impacted because of the pandemic? So we, we are big supporters of JAL and we think it's a great program. Um, you know, it gives uh, critical capability and capability or capacity building support to to Indigenous organisations around the country. And it changes um, not only the, the outlook of, of many public servants who go and do secondments, but it changes their life. Uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful program. Uh, now, it, it, is, it is based on face-to-face -face contact and, uh, and those, you know, six-week secondments or... Or, 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 you know, however long the secondment is. Um, and obviously that got scaled back very quickly uh, during COVID, but Jarwin has adapted and it's uh, it's just about to launch. I think it's virtual first virtual secondment. Um, 
to still continue to be able to provide that that capacity building and capability building to the to indigenous organisations around the country. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to get back uh, to the full program as soon as possible. But uh, I've been really pleased to, to see the the very quick evolution into the into the digital okay. space and into the virtual secondment area. Okay, it's been good. Now I. I can't let you go without us talking about that wider context that we've seen expressed over the last, you know, few weeks through Black Lives Matter and the, the rally, rallies and the responses that we've had in Australia. Um, perhaps to you first, Letitia, but I do want to come to you, Ray, as well. Where are we at and what can be done by people um, to strengthen the ties between Indigenous and, and non-Indigenous Australians? So I think there's a, there's a couple of key elements to that. So the first thing I would say is that, you know, protests are often the result of people who feel they haven't been heard and don't have a voice. So the work that the agency is doing, led by the minister, on the voice, both the national voice and the local regional voice, is a really sentinel part of work to this. I really do think... I, do, I really do believe that. Secondly, the work that um, has been undertaken for a while and is continued to be undertaking around truth-telling in terms of understanding. It comes back to that point that I was making earlier in our conversation. This isn't about... Um, it is about dealing with the truth of what we've been... of our nation, but it's not... A, it is about making sure that there's an understanding all around, around what that truth is and how we explore that together as a nation and how we actually move through that. So I think those elements of truth-telling are a really important part of this as well. Um, but, you know, we're, we're at a really important time in our nation. I mean, COVID's been historically significant. It's been anthropologically significant. And I think that there is an emergence that comes out of conversations and rethinking through priorities and really getting down to the nub of the issues that will help, that I believe will be manifested out of this, about thinking about the way we do things differently and how we traverse these issues differently. And I do think the agency has a, a really important role to play in that. Mm. And Ray, as the as the leader of, of the agency, this is a, a massively important issue and obviously how your views are going to be important. So what are they, you know? Well, I, we have around 24% of uh, agency staff uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and um, clearly um, these are sort of real heartland issues for our, our staff and I, I have been immensely impressed at the way that um, collectively they have dealt with these issues and still remained, you know, professional public servants. Because this is a really, really difficult challenge for, for, for the team to, to deal with. It goes a little bit back to what Letitia said earlier about, you know, we try and create a space in the agency to have these really difficult conversations and we deal with a lot of very difficult um, policy issues on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and a lot of them, you know, they, they go back 230 years. Um, my view on this is that the, the only way to change this, and it's a slow way, but it's one person at a time. Uh, and every single person has to be involved in, in our reconciliation journey and they have to do it through the context they make, the way they talk, the way they interact the way they listen, the way they learn. Uh, we, have a, we have a 
terrific cross-cultural uh, management program uh, in the agency called Footprints, which is a, basically a professional development program to build cross-cultural capability uh, across the organisation. It's not just learning about Indigenous culture, it's about how how different cultural perspectives knit together. Uh, and, you know, I think in terms of professionalising that in the agency, you know, that's, that's our, you know, that's our contribution um, to make sure that, at, at least in our workplace, um, we're, we're well down that reconciliation path. And, uh, and as we go out into the broader community, we hopefully take that with us. Ray Griggs and Letitia Hope, thanks for coming on the podcast and, and thank you for your service. Now, I want to finish this week's podcast with a story and an encouragement to everyone who is listening. And it's a story about a good mate of mine, Warren Roberts, who is a proud Dungati man and Bungjalung man who way back in 2007 started a movement Yarn Australia. And the mission of Yarn Australia is to build trust and respect through bringing non-Indigenous and Indigenous Australians together through story. As the only Indigenous pupil at an elite private boarding school, Warren worked out pretty quickly that there was a serious lack of understanding between Indigenous and non-Indigenous and the way they look at the world. Non-Indigenous like to identify you know, the problem and solve it, crack on, get it done, whereas Indigenous people are more reflective, more patient, more focused on talking about what is before them and not in such a hurry to get to the outcome. Well, when he started his undergraduate degree at the University of New South Wales, he found the same issue. So he decided to start Yarn Australia, to create safe and respectful places where Indigenous and non-Indigenous could come together to listen, to talk, to learn and ultimately to trust. Well, Yarn was a great success. It spread from the University of New South Wales to 10 other universities and eventually jumped the fence and into the community where for the past 13 years, Warren and his team have held hundreds of yarns in communities across Australia. Now, I've been to a yarn in Sydney and I can vouch for for the impact and for their importance. Now, COVID has been a time of great innovation for, for all of us and yarn is no different. So being unable to gather in person, which yarns traditionally were, Warren has taken yarn online and developed storyteller workshops. Now, my mate Woz does not do things by halves and he set himself the ambitious target of having one million Australians become intentional storytellers by 2050. That's one million Australians to become intentional storytellers by 2050. It's a noble ambition and I, for one, and everyone at Content Group is fully signed up to helping Was achieve this goal because if there's one thing I've learnt from observing the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States, in the UK and in Australia, it's that respectful discourse and commitment to learning and mutual understanding will help us all get to a place where we know, where we trust and where we understand, where we face the past, where we embrace the truth, as Letitia said a moment ago, and where we do it one person at a time, as Ray has just said. We can 
all own our actions and learn to become more generous. And we can, as one country, take a big step forward to building the caring, the accepting, the inclusive society that all Australians deserve and can be proud of. So please help us uh, to help Warren, indeed help Australia, to reach this target of one million intentional storytellers by 2050 by visiting yarnaustralia.com. My thanks once again to Ray Griggs and to Letitia Hope for coming onto the show, and we wish them well with their important work. And thanks also to you, the audience, for giving us some of your valuable time and attention once again. The audience continues to grow. The engagement continues to grow. So thank you. And if you do get the opportunity, please share, rate and review our program so it can be found by others. Thanks also to our great friends here at IPA and the Australian Public Service Commission who have been so supportive in making these conversations happen. Next week, our conversation will focus once again on the critically important area of service delivery, where we will be joined by Rebecca Skinner, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Services Australia. You might remember that earlier in the Work With Program series, we spoke to Catherine Campbell, who's the Secretary of the Department of Social Services, and she shared with us some of the challenges and achievements that Services Australia and indeed the wider APS team uh, had achieved uh, in the early days of COVID. And I certainly look forward to speaking to Rebecca to understand a little bit more about what's happened in the subsequent weeks and how, in fact, the agency is continuing to adapt and to a change to the ongoing challenge of the pandemic. So that will be a great conversation and I look forward to sharing that with you. We will be back at the same time next week, but for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. 